Part three, chapter five of The Gambler by Catherine Cecil Thurston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part three, chapter five. The decision was no sooner made than it was carried into execution. The order was given to the gondoliers, and instantly the long dark gondola swung round, disengaging itself from the tangle of surrounding craft, and headed for the quieter spaces of the middle stream. The Palazzo Ugocini was on the Grand Canal, and as they glided westward, past the beautiful church of Santa Maria della Salute, Barnard leant forward and directed her attention to their destination. "'There is the palace of the Ugocini,' he said. "'It contains some of the finest frescoes in Italy. It was bought up some years ago by an enterprising Frenchman who lets it out in sections. Just now Lady Frances Hope is the proud occupier of the first floor.' With a movement of interest she followed his glance, looking silently at the long line of irregular imposing buildings that stretched away before her. "'What a beautiful old place,' she said. "'Are those your friend's windows?' She indicated the first floor of the palace, from the open windows of which a warm stream of light poured downwards upon the water. "'Yes, I expect they're playing bridge up there. Francis is an enthusiast. By the way, do you gamble, Mrs. Milbank?' Involuntarily, Clodagh started and looked round. Then, as she met Barnard's bland, amiable face, she blushed at her own emotions. "'Oh, no,' she said in a low voice. "'I, I, I never play cards.' Serico looked up quickly. "'What?' he exclaimed. "'You don't play bridge?' "'I've never played any game of cards since I was a child.' The three men looked at her in unfeigned surprise. "'Not really, Mrs. Milbank?' Serico's eyes were wide with astonishment. "'Really? Quite really?' "'Why, you are ethereal, Mrs. Milbank,' Barnard said laughingly, as the gondola glided up to the palace steps. "'The passport to humanity nowadays is an inordinate love of risk.' Clodagh laughed nervously. "'Then I must be inhuman,' she said. The gondola stopped, and Lord Deerhurst rose. As he offered her his hand, he looked searchingly into her face. "'Any time can prove the truth of that statement, Mrs. Milbank,' he said, in his thin voice. In the mystery of her surroundings, the words seemed to Clodagh to possess a curious, almost a prophetic, ring, and their echo lingered in her ears as she stepped from the gondola and entered the palace. But she was young, and to the young action must ever outweigh suggestion. She had scarcely mounted the old marble staircase before the excitement of her impending ordeal sent all other ideas spinning into oblivion. There was an adventure and experience in every succeeding moment. At the head of the stairs they were met by an English manservant. He stepped forward gravely, as if accustomed to the arrival of late callers, and, relieving Clodagh of her cloak, ushered her down a long corridor and through an arched doorway hidden by a velvet curtain. The salon into which they were shown was large and high-ceilinged, the walls displayed some allegorical studies in the fresco work of which Barnard had spoken. The floor was bare of carpet and highly polished, reflecting the elaborately designed but scanty furniture and the wonderful glass chandeliers that hung from the ceiling, and in the three long windows that opened on the canal stood groups of statuary. During the moment that followed their entrance, Clodagh almost believed that the room was unoccupied, so wide and formal did it look but a second glance convinced her of her mistake. At its further end, four persons were playing cards at a small table, 
partly sheltered from the rest of the room by a massive leather screen. When the names were announced, no one at the table moved or even looked round, but immediately afterwards there was a stir among the players, and the light sound of cards being thrown hastily down, followed by a quick laugh in a woman's voice. "'Game and rubber. Well done, partner. How does the store stand, Tory?' The owner of the laugh rose from her seat, and almost instantly turned to the door, revealing to Clodagh's curious eyes a strong, energetic face, redeemed from ugliness by a pair of intensely intelligent eyes, and a mouth that displayed strong white teeth. It was the somewhat disconcerting face of a clever woman to whom life represents an undeniable, if an invigorating, struggle. Seeing the little group by the doorway, she hurried forward with an almost masculine assurance. "'You poor dear people!' she explained in her strong voice. "'A thousand apologies. We were on the point of finishing a most exciting rubber.' Her voice broke off short as her eyes rested on Clodagh. "'Who is this, Barney?' she asked interestedly. Barnard stepped forward, laying his hand smilingly on Clodagh's arm. "'This, my dear Francis,' he said, "'is a new friend that I want you to make, the wife of an old friend of mine. You may have met her husband, Mr. Milbank, one of the Somerset Milbanks. Poor Sammy knew him well.' Lady Frances Hope puckered her strong, assertive eyebrows. "'I believe I do remember meeting a Mr. Milbank, but I scarcely think—' She looked scrutinisingly at Clodagh. "'Oh, yes, it's the same, it's the same.' Barnard's interruption was somewhat hasty. "'Mr. Milbank is a great archaeologist. He and Mrs. Milbank are only in Venice for a week. I had intended to bring you to call formally at the hotel.' "'But circumstances—' Here Clodagh broke in. "'You must please, please forgive my doing such a very extraordinary thing as this,' she said. "'It was all Mr. Barnard's fault.' But Lady Frances Hope cut the explanation short by holding out her hand. "'You are extremely welcome,' she said cordially. "'And if the truth must be told, I owe you a debt of gratitude for saving me an afternoon call. It's a hundred times pleasanter to meet you like this. Now let me see. You play bridge, of course. We can make up another four. She glanced over her guests with an organising eye. Clodagh stepped forward deprecatingly and cast a beseeching look at Barnard. But in the slight pause that followed, it was Lord Deerhurst who came to her rescue. "'Mrs. Milbank has just been confessing to us that she never plays cards,' he said smoothly. "'If you will go on with your game, Lady Frances, I shall do my best to amuse her.' He turned his unemotional glance from one to the other. The surprise that his announcement had brought to their hostess's face changed instantly to an expression of hospitality. "'No, no, indeed,' she cried. "'I would infinitely prefer to talk to Mrs. Milbank. "'Come,' she added, smiling at Clodagh, "'come and let me introduce you to these bridge-playing people. "'Perhaps they will convert you.' She laughed, and, followed by the four, moved across the salon. At their approach, the three at the card-table, two women and a man, turned to look at them, and the latter, a square-built, thick-set youth, wearing a pince-nez and possessing a quick, inquisitive manner, rose to his feet. "'Mrs. Milbank,' said Lady Frances, "'this is Mr. Victor Luard. Miss Luard, Mrs. Bathurst.' Luard bowed, and the two women looked at Clodagh, each acknowledging the introduction after her own fashion. Miss Luard gave a quick, friendly nod, Mrs. Bathurst a slow and graceful inclination of the head, accompanied by a faint, insincere smile. "'Are you a bridge-player?' she asked, raising a pair of pretty, languid brown eyes to Clodagh's. 
I wish so much you would take my place. I've been having the most appalling luck. At Lance wandered on to Serico, Barnard, and Deerhurst. Ah, here is Lord Deerhurst, she cried, in a suddenly animated voice. Lord Deerhurst, do come and tell me what you would have done with a hand like this. She picked up her scattered cards and began to sort them. Then, with a graceful movement, she drew her skirts aside and indicated a vacant chair that stood beside her own. Lord Deerhurst hesitated, lifted his eyeglass, and scrutinised her pretty pink and white face, then languidly dropped into the empty chair. At the same moment, Clodagh, Serico, Luard, and his sister fell into conversation, and Lady Francis and Barnard moved away together towards one of the open windows. For a quarter of an hour the formation of the party remained unchanged. Then a slight incident caused a distraction in the assembly. Clodagh, who had shaken off her first shyness and was beginning to enjoy the conversation of her new acquaintance, heard the curtain at the arched entrance drawn back, and looking round was surprised to see two servants enter, solemnly carrying a table and a painted board, which they proceeded to set up in the middle of the room. Her wonder and curiosity were depicted on her face, for Luard looked at her quickly and interestedly. "'Don't you know what that is, Mrs. Milbank?' he asked. "'Hasn't Barney told you of Lady Frances's famous roulette?' "'Lady Frances,' he called. "'Come and initiate, Mrs. Milbank.' At the words, everyone turned and looked at Clodagh, and Lord Deerhurst, with a murmured word to Mrs. Bathurst, rose and came round to the card-table. "'Are you going to tempt the gods?' he asked in his peculiar voice. Clodagh looked round, a little embarrassed by the general interest. "'Well, I, I suppose I should like to see roulette played,' she admitted guardedly. He bent his head and looked at her with his cold, penetrating smile. "'Ah, I see,' he said softly. "'Judicious reservations.' But at that moment Lady Frances crossed the room, and, pausing by the roulette-table, set the ball spinning. "'Come along, people,' she cried gaily. "'Fortune smiles.' They all laughed and strolled across the room. "'Come along,' Lady Frances urged again. "'Come, Rose,' she smiled at Mrs. Bathurst. "'Unlucky at bridge, lucky at roulette. "'Come, Tony, come, Val.' She glanced from Luard to Serico. There was another amused laugh, and all the party, with the exception of Clodagh, stepped forward and placed one or many coins upon the table. Lady Frances's eyes were quick to detect the exception. With her fingers poised above the board, she waited smilingly. "'Won't you stake, Mrs. Milbank?' she asked. Clodagh blushed and stepped back shyly. At the same instant, Serico moved forward to her side. "'Oh, Mrs. Milbank, but you must!' he cried. Again confusion covered Clodagh, as all eyes were turned upon her. "'No, please,' she said. "'I, I, I think I'd rather not.' Bonnard laughed suavely. "'Mrs. Milbank is wise,' he said. She wants to see which way the gods are pointing. Then Mrs. Milbank is unwise. The gods are jealous beings. We must not treat them with suspicion. I'll stake for her. It was Lord Deerhurst who spoke, and regardless of Clodagh's quick, half-frightened expostulation, he stepped forward out of the little circle and placed a gold coin on the number thirteen. A moment later Lady Frances gave a short, amused laugh, and with a dexterous movement of the fingers set the ball whizzing. To Clodagh it was a supreme and extraordinary moment. Until Lord Deerhurst had made the stake, until the first click of the spinning ball had struck upon her ear, 
She had been conscious of only one feeling, a prejudiced innate dread of every game, whether of chance or skill, upon which money could be staked. But the simple placing of the coin, the simple turning of the pivot, had marked for her a psychological moment. With a quick catching of the breath, she stepped involuntarily forward, aware of but one fact, the keen, exhilarating knowledge that the stopping of the ball must mean loss or gain, individual loss or gain. During the dozen seconds that it spun round the circle, she stood silent. Then a faint sound of uncontrollable excitement slipped from between her lips. Hers was the winning number. As in a dream, she extended her hand and took the little heap of money from the fingers of Luard, who had come to Lady Frances's assistance. Then, on the instant that the coins touched her palm, her excitement evaporated. Her sense of elation fell away, to be succeeded by the first instinctive shrinking that had swayed her imagination. Acting purely upon impulse, she turned to Lord Deerhurst, and before he could remonstrate, pressed the money into his hand. "'Please take it,' she said urgently. "'Please take it. It isn't mine. It oughtn't to be mine. I, I don't wish to play.'" End of Part 3, Chapter 5